Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Virtual reality in your smart home? That's what we're talking about with Google's Bashir Tomei on today's Smart Home Show. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, this is Mike Wolf. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. Today's guest is Bashir Tomei, who helps lead up hardware interface design for virtual reality at Google. And you might be asking why I have a virtual reality hardware interface designer on the Smart Home Show. Well, let me tell you, I think this idea of interacting with our homes, our environments, using virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, will become really interesting over the next few years in the home and outside of the home. But I just think it's a really interesting concept, particularly as you start to have sensors and beacons in your home that are putting out information that can be utilized by virtual reality and augmented reality. I just think it'll be uh, something to watch. And so we talk about that. I had originally got to know Bashir a little bit as he expressed interest in the Smart Kitchen Summit. So we also talk about how eating and cooking will be impacted by this, this idea of virtual reality augmented reality. So that's that's included in this conversation as well. We also talk about design because after all, he is a designer and he thinks a lot about how we as humans interact with machines. And so we talk about some of the products out today, whether it's smart home, smart kitchen. We also talk about some of the, the modern smart home interfaces like Alexa and Google Home and how those will interface increasingly with virtual reality and augmented reality. So it's a really interesting and wide ranging conversation. I hope you enjoy it. For those of you who want to maybe get together, have a little conversation, I will be down in San Francisco at the Target Open House store, the newly remodeled concept store, for their vision of the future of the home. Uh, They've remodeled it. I'll be going down there on the night of February 16th, Thursday, and we'll be hosting a Smart Kitchen event. I'll be hosting uh, a podcast there. Uh, We'll have conversations with uh, Steve Sebasian from Innova. We'll talk with Malky Moynihan, my old friend who helped design the original Echo, Amazon Echo. He's now over at Juicero. We'll be talking to him and a few other folks. So stay tuned for that. If you do want to go, you might want to sign up for my newsletter. Go to the spoon.tech, sign up for that newsletter. We'll be sending out the Evite, the Eventbrite invite in the next few days. So just sign up for that newsletter. If you're in San Francisco, you want to get together, hear some of the, the podcasts live, uh, and maybe get a free free drink, some some bites to eat on the night of February 16th. Thursday in San Francisco, uh, go to the spoon.tech, sign up for the newsletter because we will be sending out those invites early next week. All right, folks, that's it for now. Let's talk to Bashir. Hey, I'm excited to have Bashir Tomei, the hard, uh, a hardware interface designer. I don't think you're the only one at, at Google and the virtual reality side of things, but you're a hardware interface designer for, for virtual reality with Google. How are you doing, Bashir? Good, good. Um, I'm actually the only one by title. But oh, okay, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make this a thing. I, there's this sort of unproven space between industrial design and user experience design that generally gets covered by one or the other. But um, there's like the people, the industrial designers who care about how a product looks and how it sort of has its own brand and the aesthetics. And then there's the user experience designers who are worried about like what buttons are on it and how do those work and how those function and how do people use the product. 
Um, but very often, one or the other has to do both of those jobs when it comes to the actual buttons on a piece of hardware. And so usually it ends up getting skewed one way or the other, or you get something beautiful that's hard to use, or you get something easy to use that's not quite so appealing. So I, I try and sit in between the two and help connect them together. And and I think a lot about how something might feel in your hand, how good it clicks, and how easy it is to use, and how you can remember where all the things are and how they work. And um, I think part of the interest on the food side for me is that for some reason, all these kitchen manufacturers, the, the minute they put a chip in it, they forget everything they've ever learned and just go nuts. And uh, <laughs> We'll definitely dive into you know what your thoughts are around some of the, the products being designed for the kitchen because there's a lot of different attempts and a lot of different things going on. But let's talk a little bit more about what you're doing every day at Google. So with Google, as many people know, um, is investing heavily in, in virtual reality. But the way you think about it, and based on our early conversations, you guys are trying to make it somewhat more of a platform for something other than just gaming. Because a lot of people think of the virtual reality in the context of let's play a really immersive video game. But I think you guys are going to try trying to make it more broadly applicable to our life in, in a lot of different respects. Yeah, we really see virtual reality and augmented reality. And um, there's like a third variant, mixed reality, which is more mediated. But we really see these spatial computing platforms as really like the next version of computing as we as we know it and it might not take over 100% of the way you interact with the computers but we do see it as a major step and a major piece uh, going forward and so for that to be true it has to break away from being just about gaming I, I think there's a lot of really great gaming experience you can have and experiences I've personally already had um, but it it really comes down to trying to take this thing that people tend to enjoy already a little bit on the on the gaming side and trying to open it up to the rest of everyone. And we do that through creating apps that actually are relevant to them, that help solve needs and problems. But then we also think about how to bring down the cost to make it more accessible, work with other manufacturers and partners so that there's a wide variety of uh, platforms with different abilities that sort of market to those people. And we're really trying to turn this into a more broad, generalized platform more than just a gaming rig. And for people who aren't into this idea of virtual reality and augmented reality, mixed reality, very briefly explain the differences, what the differences are between those three. Sure. Um, Virtual reality is where you're putting a headset on your face and um, be it made out of cardboard or plastic or fabric. And really there's a screen in there. And in an ideal world, we're tracking where it is um, either uh, rotationally or in an even ideal world in free space. And it really feels like you're replacing your entire reality around you with a virtual one, um, and you're interacting with that, yep. and that can happen yep. over, yeah, over digital space, and you can interact with other friends. But for the most part, you're taken to a different place. With augmented reality, you're you stay in the same place, and we're actually overlaying information and uh, on top of that. And what that generally means is that you have a transparent display rather than something opaque. Um, and we're like like Google Glass. Uh, no. Uh, so I think that's one of the biggest mischaracterizations of Google Glass, because Google Glass never put stuff directly between the, the majority of your vision right, and, right. Okay. and what you're looking at. Uh, Google Glass, uh, we, we called a heads-up display, which more st- stays in the corner of your eye. And it was supposed to be like a more comfortable, easier-to-use um, notification center and image-capturing device rather than Got it. Um, actually augmenting everything you see. Uh, mixed reality is more of like a hybrid in between step. Um, but that, uh, so right now with augmented reality, one of the biggest drawbacks is that you overlay 
uh, light on top of what you're seeing. And so a lot of times you can't really replace what you see. You can only add stuff on top. Uh, mixed or mediated reality ends up being more of a, you actually have opaque pixels and you can actually replace things that you see in your vision. And oftentimes, especially nowadays, it means using a screen, but then you're using a camera to actually show you what's going on outside. And then you're editing that video live rather than having to just overlay it purely on top. And when you talk about augmented reality, some of the earliest, uh, I guess, instantiations of that coming into the world, I remember were on Android phones. You would have a smartphone and then you kind of move it around and, th- and through the camera, it would overlay information on top. Is that basically what we're talking about, the most common form of augmented reality today when you're when you're using some sort of smartphone app? Yeah, I think nowadays that's, that's definitely the most common variety of it. Um, I, I think one of the biggest drawbacks it has right now is oftentimes it doesn't really have a whole lot of awareness about what's actually in your world. Yep. It knows generally what you're looking at and that you're rotating the phone and it can put stuff on top. I think Pokemon Go is a great example of that yep. where... You see the camera behind and the Pokemon sort of standing there and they might try and do some clever stuff with the Pokemon laying on the ground. But for the most part, it doesn't know if there's a chair there. It doesn't know if there's a door. It's it's not as smart as it could be. And I think when people talk about the future of augmented reality, it's much more in-depth and much more involved. And that's part of why we haven't really gotten there as much yet, because you actually have to start scanning the world, tracking the world, and knowing where every single object is in free space. And at Pokemon Go, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think basically takes GPS data to give it a, a basic understanding of, of the world. Um, so, but it's, it doesn't, it hasn't really gone through the physical world and created a, like this really nuanced process database of all the spaces. Am I right on that? Yeah, that's correct. I, I think in a true augmented reality world, like the way people use the, the term, if you were looking at a Pokemon standing in the parking lot, then someone else could be looking at it in the exact same space, in the exact same position. And you'd be both looking at the same one. Whereas today with the game, you're generally in the same location, you end up finding the same Pokemon, but they might not be in the same spot. And for, for Pokemon Go, it's still a great fun experience. So I, I think finding and tuning the fidelity of games and applications to the fidelity of the actual experience you're able to bring, I think can help still make compelling experiences. You don't have to have like a fully augmented reality world for you to have a great time. So when you look at the capabilities of what we have today in augmented reality in a home context, I want to talk a little bit about how possibly you can apply this type of uh, technology within our homes to make it a more rich experience. I can certainly see how it would be valuable for people with, you know, maybe they have mobility issues. When it's dark, they can't see, but they can maybe use augmented reality to, to identify things in their surroundings. Do you see huge potential using augmented or even virtual reality within the home context? Yeah, I think there's definitely a crazy amount of possibilities for that. And I, and I think the vast majority of them are stuff we can't even really think of until we have the technology out there. Um, but I, So I work on the input team specifically, and we all sort of report up to this more virtual augmented reality and media reality. It, it's a big combined department. So pr- when you say uh, input, though, information, you're taking in information from around the world to process. Um, no, uh, it's less on the sensing side and more on how a person interacts with okay. this okay. device. Got it, got it. So, okay. yeah, much more uh, design-centric and pe- people-centric than sure. um, technology-centric. And and so we interact with the Tango team a lot, actually, and we, we work with them trying to think of like different ways people can use this technology and integrate it into their daily lives. And I, I think Tango especially has gotten me pretty excited about a lot of these possibilities and how fast they'll be coming. I mean, there, there's already multiple Tango phones coming down the pipe and, and we're really looking at sort of a 
more broad adoption of the technology. For the, for the audience, very quickly, explain the Tango phone concept. Oh, right. Sorry. Um, so Tango is our first party um, augmented reality um, tracking system that uses uh, a camera and a few other extra sensors that are relatively cheap to reconstruct your world and actually figure out where you are absolutely positioned to the entire um, Earth, which is crazy and awesome. <laughs> and so it actually can figure out like not just where are you in the world or where are you generally, but it knows that you're in this room, in this exact spot, and you're looking at this door that it has seen and scanned before. For each person's reality in their space, their life space that they're moving around in, it, it creates its own unique personalized database. It's going to know my home. It's scanned it before. And then from there, it can add richness to that. Um, it can maybe add information and interactivity. Yeah. I mean, I think what's unique about it is that, yeah, it can keep personalized data about um, about you and sort of you can save your own data. But I, I think what's unique is that it actually has a unique recollection of say your desk and it knows where it is and that you've looked at it. And so that if you had placed say a box on your desk, then your friend can come over, open up their phone, start boot up Tango and start up an app. And they can also see that same box in the same place. So it's, it's really starting to, yeah, it's really starting to catalog and connect all of these things in real life, in real space. So I don't actually have to buy my, my wife, like a real gift. I could just Create a virtual gift and leave it there for her. <laughs> you you could let her know that he has a real gift. <laughs> in a... So you'd recommend actually still buying her stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't know your wife, so maybe she might. I think it's probably a good idea to keep buying stuff. That's a general rule. But um, <laughs> yeah, my wife probably wouldn't like virtual uh, reality gifts in part because she doesn't necessarily like. I I don't think she likes the idea of virtual reality. And that's another topic entirely. You know, when you you go to like Universal Studios and all the, all the rides now are basically you're moving around in this, uh, in this chair that goes around and, but you're basically looking at a screen and it's creating, creating the illusion of moving fast through space. Uh, but it's, it's really almost like a 3d experience. She, you know, she doesn't like that. She doesn't like that. She doesn't like watching 3d movies. And so she's really scared about this idea of virtual reality. And I know that there's like a term for people who have a problem with like this, the, the concept of virtuality. Is that something you guys are trying to work with and make it more up? So people just aren't getting that weird sense of disorientation when they, when they're in these 3d environments. Yeah, that's definitely one of our biggest things we're trying to help fix. I mean, I, I think in particular, um, Virtual reality these days seems pretty in opposition to to a lot of uh, women's sensibilities and and a lot of us because it's it's this big expensive annoying thing and I, and I think in general <laughs> women are much less it they'd much rather not deal with useless stuff. Uh, I, I think. By the way, can I say those those Samsung advertisements where they show the person in the middle of a, a room with a big mask on and there's a bunch of people around them looking at them. Those are just terrible commercials because it just looks so awkward. <laughs> I, I, we're actually huge fans of their product. I, I think they got a lot of things right really early in, and I, and that's not you know that's not Google forcing me to say that. I, I think it actually is a pretty great product. And... No, it's more the advertising though. I just because to your point, oh, like, yeah. I think this idea of a person sitting there with a, a headset in the on in the middle of a room with people looking at it that just seems like an awkward social situation for a lot of people, and maybe even more so for a woman <laughs> or at least my wife. Yeah, I, I think some of the biggest drawbacks that a lot of uh, virtual reality ex- marketing today it, it, is it's aimed at gamers. Yep. It's aimed at dudes for the most part. Like it's it's black, it's big, it 
has all these big cables and it has all this crazy high setup costs. And um, it's just like a lot of hassle for not a lot of gain. And we're really trying to fix a lot of that. And we're really trying to open it up to a lot more people. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about some of those type of applications that we can use within the home. One of those I think is eating. I know that that's a particular passion for you. Um, talk a little bit about and how, where we are in that. Cause it seems like, you know, to some people, this seems like maybe it's like this weird, you know, unfathomable, you can never kind of create a virtual eating experience, but, it, and some people are actually working heavily on this because it seems like maybe there's a lot of applications for like weight loss, et cetera. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities there. I mean, I, I just want to be clear that, I mean, as of today, you know, the, the visual of having this big black box strapped to your face while getting chili all over your shirt as you're trying to eat, <laughs> I, I think is yeah. pretty dystopic and comical. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities for sure. I mean, there, there's a lot of interesting studies revolving around using uh, audio to manipulate your sensations a bit while you're eating. There's a lot about um, color and, and visual information. And uh, I think the weight loss thing, I, I think, could get there. I'm a little less bullish on that, yeah. but I, I think there's a lot of interesting use cases, and I, and, I, and I can try and dive into a few of those. But um, I, I think one of my favorite examples, for sure, is uh, Heston Blumenthal's dish, The Sound of the Sea. Yep. So explain uh, that think, for people. Yeah, I think he made it around 2010 at the Fat Duck, but it, it it's this super oceany dish where you've got scallops and sea foam and flowers, and it looks like this beautiful ocean wave on the beach. Um, and he, I, he was really fascinated with trying to really enhance the the sea and the seafood taste that you get there. And he, I think he ran across this one research paper that said that if you listen to the sound of waves or you eat it on the beach or you're at the ocean, that you, you sort of get that sensation a lot more strongly and you taste a lot more strongly the ocean if, if you can hear those waves. And so what he actually does is you get the dish and then next to it, uh, it comes a conch and inside the conch is an iPod playing, playing sound, the sounds of waves. And it has two little earbuds that stick out and you play and they instruct you to place them into your ears and then you eat the dish and it sort of puts you in the right time in the right place and really opens up your senses. So for people who don't know Heston Blumenthal, he's a, he's basically a celebrity chef, uh, worked at the fat doc. Um, actually probably one of the most famous chefs in the world. And so what you're saying is he is also a pioneer in, in, in a way, in virtual eating. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess it depends on how you define the, yeah, yeah. the virtual aspect. Well, multi -sen of it, maybe maybe it's multi-sensory cooking, what a, or another term. Yeah, yeah, another term I've seen is cross-modal um, sensory, where where you're trying to use sound or some other non-taste sense to augment your taste. You talked a little bit about like using sound. There's obviously this strong olfactory sense or smelling sense. Um, there's also been research in, in actual virtually recreating uh, taste sensations using, you know, uh, some weird kind of contraption that would put send electrical <laughs> impulses to your tongue. But do you follow all this stuff that's on the cutting edge about maybe manipulating even your taste senses? I'm really skeptical about where they're at with some of that stuff. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I work a lot in haptics and thinking about how you can use like vibrations and different types of stimuli to, different sensations in virtual reality. And there are these, yeah, electrical pads that you stick to like your arm or your, uh, or different parts of your body and you can send electric current through there and it actuates the muscle. Um, I've seen a lot of that stuff and it never, it's always marketed as, Oh, it like feels like your arm just moved. And it, it feels a lot more like a reflex than it does like your body intentionally moved it. And yeah. it, it gets really stingy and tingly. 
Um, so I'm I'm skeptical that if you yeah. put it on your tongue or on your throat, that it really would feel just yeah. like eating a steak. Yeah, like it'd be this amazing taste just through like uh, it. It more be feel like maybe you're gonna shunt your face, your mouth shocked. That's <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, sending a giant shock through your mouth gives you an iron taste. Uh, I, I would, I think that one's a slam dunk, but uh, other than that... Uh, Maybe that's just the blood coming through your mouth at, at some point. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm a little skeptical of that stuff, but, you know, I'm always willing to try the demo and, and be wrong. But you, you, this is an area that you have taken a lot of interest in, so talk a little bit about how you think think about it more broadly. You know, you, t- you talked a little bit about Heston Bumathol. But it's an area that you, you you have a personal interest in. How do you think this idea of like combining either augmented or virtual reality with a f- with food in some way? How can what are some of the possibilities in the future? Um, I, I think some fun uh, little examples of that are um, like the which frequencies you hear while you're crunching or eating, especially when it relates to texture, has a huge effect on that that texture sense. So there, there's a fun few tricks people can try at home. Like if you uh, put on some really noise canceling headphones, like get some nice Bose ones or whatever brand you prefer, uh, and you try and eat some potato chips, they don't feel as crunchy because you don't hear those high frequency sounds. Uh, and similar, similarly, you can do that with um, if you still wear the noise canceling headphones and then you put your hands on a chalkboard and slide them across. Oh. It feels a lot smoother because a lot of a lot of your sensory information for those higher frequency sounds um, comes through your ears rather than through your fingers. And it's really your fingers that are more detect than the lower frequency sounds. Is it less horrible if you're scratching it with your fingernails? With that Actually, yeah, it, it is less horrible if you wear the noise canceling ear. It, it feels a lot smoother and a lot um, odder. And there, there's a guy, uh, Charles Spence, who's done a lot of these experiments and published them. And um, he, he actually, uh, there's a podcast I love, uh, Gastropod. Yep. from yeah Cynthia Nicola and they they had a whole episode where they interviewed Charles and uh I think it was called Crunch Crackle and Pop and uh yeah it's it's fascinating and and, and there's a lot of really interesting work there on just just the audio component cuz we don't think about uh the separation of all these different senses and what you're saying is the experience completely changes if you manipulate one part of it maybe it's the hearing you put on noise canceling headphones uh, something that like could be entirely horrible, like running your fingers down a uh, down a chalkboard. You're saying it changes the nature of that, and that's a that idea is maybe applicable to a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the general concept of replacing your senses with some digital ones, I think, is a little bit more far off. But I, I think the concept of augmenting them is a lot closer closer to reality today. And, and I think when people talk about augmented reality or virtual reality, so rarely do they think of anything but the visual. Yep. And when they do, they they go straight to audio. And those are some of the most you know lower hanging fruits and a lot easier for computers to do. We still haven't you know cracked the nut on creating digital aromas and and uh, even haptics are still quite rudimentary. It's just different variations on a vibrating motor. Um, it's but- funny because you talked about digital. Uh- Digital smells. I remember back in the early 2000s at CES, people were talking about that. I thought it was kind of the sign of uh, the impending bubble uh, that <laughs> that came. And and but what I, I've seen at CES this year and maybe the last year or two is people are getting back into this idea of of trying to crack that nut. Where are we on that uh, in terms of like creating digital olfactory senses or digital smells? Is, is there some interesting work being done there? Or is it just is this still far ways off? Still a long way off? I think it's still crazy far off. I- I think part of it is because they haven't cracked the nut on actually sensing the different smells. And I, and I think that's one of the first major components is be able to understand 
and deconstruct a smell and understand what parts of it make make it that actual scent. Um, and, and I think they can kind of do that through pretty intense laboratory studies, but they haven't figured out a way to have, similar to what you have a microphone for audio, they don't really have like a digital nose for, for smells. And I think once you get to that point, then you can start working backwards a little bit better and, and then start reproducing those smells. There but are. as it stands today, it's, there's, there's all these different bits that you have to create. And I, most, of the, most of the products and demos I've seen involve just having a large myriad of vials and sprayers, and then you combine a few. But there's certainly, I think, I've seen some startups. There's some at CES talking or at least aspiring to be that digital nose. Um, but the digital nose, as you're saying, this kind of this this sensor that can just know what the smells are, that research is still way off, way far off. It's still in the laboratories. It hasn't been something you can create in a consumer device at this point. Yeah, and it is only the, the first half. Uh, you have to be able to sense, and then you can produce. Let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, just the smart home and either augmented reality or virtual reality. I mean, one of the things about the smart home is you just have, uh, the, you know, over time, the fabric of the home becomes more intelligent. Certainly in some of the consumer facing smart home, uh, products today, whether that's a, a managed one from like a Vivint or even like a DIY one, you have sensors around the home. To me, those sensors become, uh, ways in which you can maybe make experiences richer because it's giving information. Have you, do you think a lot about maybe interacting with things like smart homes, things like IOT with, with virtual reality, with augmented reality? Um, I, we think about it a little bit. I, I think not a whole lot because it, it still requires a big platform play and it, it feels a little bit further down the road. But I, I think there's certainly opportunities for it. For me, one of the biggest com- missing components for a lot of the Internet of Things type stuff is I, I think – we work really hard to get all these sensors into the products, but I, I think I, I don't see enough thinking about how then that digital information or those sensors can then affect the product itself. It feels very one-sided. So like the, the device can talk about itself, but then it can't really take much action. That's interesting that like that isn't as far as long as it should be. I mean, you're looking at like retailers, for example, you know, putting you know information into stores through beacons and and kind of broadcasting that information. There's people building out smart cities where there's there's sensors around and, and beacons kind of broadcasting information. And certainly within the home, you're seeing that increasingly. That seems like natural information that you would take and use in like an augmented environment, augmented reality type of of application. Why isn't that farther along? The world's a big place. <laughs> It, it require there's so many different variables, so many different things going on, and, and I think it just it requires an extreme amount of collaboration, cooperation, and building out the foundations. Uh, I I think it's going to be one of those things that happens very slowly and then just pops and happen. It I, I don't think you're going to see gradual incremental progress. I, I think you'll see all the groundwork slowly being laid, and then it, eventually people will realize it's all there and then start taking advantage of it. I think we're getting closer. I don't think that one's as far off as say digital noses but uh <laughs> is the is it a natural to fuse smart home and iot with virtual reality because it seems to me one of the big app one of the big benefits of of a smarter home is just more rich information why couldn't you take that and process that in in whatever sort of virtual or mixed reality application you're using it seems like that's a natural path right yeah i would hope so i, I think one of my biggest complaint one of my other biggest complaints about the whole smart home um, use cases is so much of it's on the input side, so disconnected. Um, like if you want to flush your toilet, you got to open an app. 
If you want to ring your doorbell, you got to open an app. Wait, wait, wait. wait. All these- You're not doing the. <laughs> Do you have the flesh to toll it app? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's all these separate experiences that yeah. require their own app and they're doing the best they can with what they got now but I, I think the ideal world involves being able to universally control them in some simple way well I think that Amazon and I think increasingly Google is trying to solve that with uh, things like natural language interfaces like Alexa um, because that became that was like a disruptive play because everyone was thinking in a different way like you know Apple with HomeKit to me was a much older school style of thinking around Smartum. Let's build this platform and put like a special chip in every device and go through all this approval process. And then, and then Amazon comes out and says, Hey, I'm going to do this really cool device. It has voice control. And by the way, everyone's going to want to integrate it with it because it's really popular. And so we have this like low friction universal voice interface that everyone's integrating with You know, they have 8 million or so devices out there today. I think Google's trying to do the same thing with Google home. When you think about that, um, that, that type of virtual assistant interface, how does that maybe possibly fuse together with augmented reality, virtual reality? Is there some way you're trying to conceive of a way those things, those two things come together for like a, a an enriching experience for the consumer or making their lives better in some way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the assistant and is a major priority for the company and it's something we're really thinking about. And we really see a lot of potential in, um, but I, I also find voice as it's a it's a great singular type of experience, but I I don't think it's the answer to everything, and I think you even see that with um, with Allo, where yes, you can talk to the assistant with your voice, but you can also chat with it via text and and input it and you do input through tapping on some suggested bubbles. So I I think ideally you're interacting with it in in any variety of ways um, and what feels natural in in each instance. You bring up a great point. So voice. Is just such a natural, uh, natural language or natural uh, human interface. But you know, before that, people forget for a while. There, a lot of people thought maybe around the 2010 to 2012 timeframe, that motion and gesture was the next big revolution in interfaces after capacitive touch, um, because we had some 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 mini hits in the sense of like the the Microsoft Connect, which did fairly well to kind of rejuvenate the Xbox 360. But when, when Microsoft came out the, the Xbox One and Kinect was kind of front and center, it was largely viewed as a failure. And I think that was somewhat damaging to the movement around uh, gesture-based recognition and as an interface. But I do think like gesture and just natural motion as an interface is still a really interesting thing. And I think it's one you probably think a lot about, obviously, being <laughs> in the world of virtual reality. So talk about that. Like, uh, you know, that is an interface. It seemed to me like, you know, after the Wii slash Kinect wave, I think we've seen a little bit of a wall, but is that going to come back and become a much bigger part of all of our lives as an interface? Well, uh, well one distinction I do want to make is that, is I think the Wii is a slightly different type of interface than I would say the Kinect is. Yeah, the, yeah. the Wii, yeah, it's a lot more motion controlled. Right, right. Where, Accelerometer where based. Like, yeah, and you, you have buttons in your hand that you can use to give very defined, precise, obvious input. Whereas something like with the Kinect, it's definitely a natural much more computer vision computer vision based right yeah and i think there's some really tough challenges when it comes to using uh pure gesture without any extra amount of input um we we tend to have this three-part venn diagram where it's got to be a comfortable b something that doesn't make you look or feel awkward and then c isn't something you already do all the time and finding the perfect intersection between all the three is incredibly hard because you don't just want to like in the example of like the 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 Nest 
protect firearm. You don't want to do like a commonplace thing, like scratch your nose and, and set the alarm off. <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Although the the issue they ran into there was l- less um, accidental gestures from users uh, accidentally turning it off, but more like the they used a pyroelectric sensor for for the Nest to detect whether or not your hand is is waving, um, which means it operates off of heat. And then it turns out that a flickering flame looks a lot like a, a waving hand. But just the ability to misinterpret signals in the world could be a big deal if you're using those types of interfaces. Yeah, and be able to communicate to the user what they can do and what they could do and where the ends of what they're able to manipulate start and stop, I think, is also incredibly complex when you basically have no interface. You know, what are you most excited about as you apply virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality into our lives, particularly within a home context over the next five to 10 years? What are you excited about? One of my favorite aspects of this whole movement um, this time around versus like 10 years ago or uh, before that is suddenly having a motion tracked in free space controller is something that's accessible to pretty much anyone with a few hundred dollars and ideally even less money going forward. So it, I think that's one of the biggest breakthroughs we've had. It's being able to track something in free space easily, and be it your headset or your hands or or being able to do just good enough with just rotation. And, and I think taking what we can learn from there and seeing what how spatial computing can sort of change computing, I, I think is really exciting to me. And to get to something specific, I, there's a lot of creation tools um, and creative tools that I, that I think could really benefit from this. I, I think especially more on the industrial design side and product design side, when you're working with hardware, it's incredibly hard to understand scale when you're looking at something on a 2D screen, zooming in and out, and be able to really understand that and work with it directly one-to-one, I think is a game changer, especially for people who are making anything bigger than their hands. Uh, it's It gets incredibly harder to 3D print or just immediately fabricate something that size. Like when... when if you look at the way car designers work, they, they use clay to build out a lot of the, those concepts. And it's really time consuming. It's really expensive. And you don't get a lot of iterations. Whereas like, if you could actually work on a car at one-to-one scale you, digitally, then you could really move forward and iterate incredibly fast and ideally get to some better designs that are both more attractive and safer. You, had, you said at the beginning of the show you had some ideas or you had some feedback for people who were creating um, – new devices in the kitchen, smart kitchen devices. What are what are some of the biggest pitfalls you're seeing around design around today's current crop of, of smart kitchen devices? I think a lot of it's just not thinking through the way a person would actually use the product and really trying to create a, pro- a product that represents bullet points rather than an actual journey or a task that a, a human needs to do while using the product. I think a, like a kitchen timer is a great example of this bifurcation where before you have a chip in it, it's round, it's metal, it sort of hums while it's running and you rotate it. And so as you rotate it, you feel that cranking and then you have a visual representation of how much time is left. It's, it's basically like a pie graph. And as it goes over time, it, it, it moves and you can see from far away where it's at. And then when it finishes, it dings. And inexplicably, when they jumped to digital, they decided screw that, let's just do a grid of buttons, one through nine, and it's going to beep every time you hit a button, and if you need to restart it, then you got to hold down start-stop. And it and it just frustrates, it's one of those things where I understand that's way cheaper. I understand that, like, you know, if you want to buy the $1 kitchen timer, then sure, that's that's the cheap one. 
But you can't pay good money for a nice digital timer that aesthetically works and that works the way your hands and work and the way the way you've been using them over time. And honestly, like a rotary encoder, which is what you would use to to make a digital kitchen timer work rotationally, is not expensive. It's like it's cents on the dollar. So there, there's no real excuse other than just the way you approach the problem and the way you think about it. So what you're saying is when we move from mechanical and physical world of controls towards the digital world, it pays or you should always think about paying homage to the learned behavior uh, that you know we've had over the, our, our lifetime, um, not just jump into this world uh, of work. It's a complete departure. Um, and you know it's kind of in the way like when I'm reading an ebook on on an iPad, even though I'm, I'm doing it with my my fingers and it's on a screen, like they actually try to create the visual look and and flipping of a page. So we need to have some of those hints and kind of homages to the the world of the, the of the physical world. Uh, yeah, in a sense. I mean, I, I feel like homage is a little bit more ceremonial than I would even uh, <laughs> go for. I, I would say like you're throwing away decades of learning. Like you, we've already figured out a lot of really great ways, and you could at least try and and learn from that and, and utilize that. I, I think toasters are another great example where um, for some reason, every time they want to add a feature, it's another button and they just don't really think through how a normal person would use it. Like, you, And I, I think one of my favorite examples, I, I guess to, to not be overly critical, I think one of my favorite companies that I really feel like it gets it a lot of the time is Breville. I, I really feel like they, they actually think about how a normal human would would work through these problems and then they they design around that and, and I think they I, I as of last time I checked they have one of the highest selling toasters on Amazon and it's like an order of magnitude more expensive than everyone else and people still buy it, it and they they have all these amazing little things on there that now almost everyone just belligerently copies but uh, they were the first ones to have a little button on the toaster that says a little bit more and honestly <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does thirty seconds mean anything less or more to you? Like not really. So like it 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 gets the thought across and it and it really connects with you on a human level. And I get that. I think you know having those fine touches that differentiate like a little bit more. I love that. But when we talk about like um, generational shifts towards uh, you know mo- you know maybe it's millennials, people even younger than that, and using new technologies. I mean, clearly none of those people know how to use a rotary dial phone. Um, none of us really think about rubbing rocks together to create fire, to use an ultimately extreme example. But um, it's, I mean, are, is this just like a trans – do we need these uh, these hints or these homages to like older ways of doing things as like uh, a bridge to get to the new thing? Or do you think it's just something you want to keep in perpetuity over time even into the new generation? I I think it's less about sort of keeping in tradition and more of – adapting and the technology to work you take the good parts about what works and, and you keep those and then you let go of the parts that don't work um and then, and then you i think a great another great example of where I, I see a lot of this bifurcation is is in the sous vide machines um like i i think i love the jewel it's beautiful the app is beautiful the people who made it are some of the nicest people in the world but I just don't understand why there's no buttons on it. It it really basically is. It was a brave that, choice. You got to admit it was brave. But I I agree with you. I think that was for it's some a people. Bold choice. Some people yeah brave, bold. For some people, it's a deal breaker. I think. I it's it's an implicit promise saying that we will update this. We will we will keep the app updated. We will staff this, and we will be around because 
the minute we stop being around or the minute we stop staffing this app, your machine won't really work anymore. Because unless you're going to dedicate a phone and an app and never update them ever again to just being this walled-off garden that only operates your sous vide machine, um, your OS will update, you'll get a new phone, and the app won't work anymore. I think the way, in general, when we build apps, it's kind of like building a sandcastle next to the ocean. Everything's constantly in flux, and you also have the waves. And if you don't keep updating and you don't keep repairing, it stops working. Yeah, the great thing about the old world is, like, if I if I go into like my 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 grandparents' basement and I find this old clock, um, uh, you know, if it hasn't been water damaged or or, or whatever, it, there's a good chance it'll work still. And but if you if you were to like go into your basement like 50 years from now and find an old jewel, and the last time they they created the app was like you know in, in 2025, then you're pretty. This thing's a piece of junk. You can't use it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, to, you know, to give you a good example that's not just on the over-extreme version of, like, it's all analog and steampunk, uh, I, I think Anova does a great job of straddling the line between the two, where they have a physical knob, they've got a few lightweight buttons on top, and you can use the entire device without ever having to know that there's a phone app or that it even has Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. But if you want some of the more advanced controls and you really want it to time itself and you really want it to, to have ac- direct access to recipes and have it automatically pick and choose the times, that's when you borrow the phone and that's when you get some of the more complex features. And so you take the simplest, most critical aspects of how you use the product and you build it into the hardware. And then the more advanced features where it would really be a high cost and low gain to integrate into the hardware, you then offload it onto a borrowed screen like your phone. And I think that's absolutely the right way to approach it. And I, those are actually the two sous vide machines I, I switch back and forth between. And I have to say, obviously with the Jewel, I have to use the app, right? But when I use the Nova, quite honestly, a lot of times I just plug it in and I do, I use the on-screen buttons and, and dial and I don't ever go to my phone just because I'm, it's quicker to me. And that's one of the things I think in general, I love connected devices. I mean, I, I interface with, I have been interfacing with my Sonos for the past decade using a, a great app. Um, I've increasingly started to use my Amazon Alexa just using my voice. So I, I'm seeing how that transition from capacitive touch to voice is happening for me. But even with, with something like a sous vide cooker, if it's on an on, on device button and dial, that's just quicker to me than get, getting a phone involved. But I, I do see the value of the, the Juul um, guided cooking app, like the, this idea of visual doneness. Using that I think is valuable. So I can see using that, but you're still, um, if you don't need that necessarily, then you have to still use the phone, meaning it's in one extra step. Yeah, I, I, I like this idea of having the options because you're not purely relying on their good faith and goodwill to, to, to keep updating and supporting the hardware and while, while still allowing them to provide you some of these more advanced features. Um, but that said, I mean, by them consciously not including those buttons in that interface, it does allow them to make it a lot smaller, a lot sleeker. And I, I I completely understand why they made the decisions they made, and I'm less crit- trying to criticize them specifically, and more just it's kind of my like personal opinion. I, I've asked you mainly about virtual reality and, and augmented reality around eating, but have you given thought about using that uh, what you do every day in creating this this these controls in in cooking? Like, how can we maybe apply virtual reality or uh, or augmented reality or uh, in some way around making food? Is that is that something you think about? Um, a bit, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of obvious um, potential ways to incorporate uh, augmented reality into cooking where you're getting tips. It's might, It might be live. It might even connect you to another chef or someone remote who might be giving you instructions step by step. Or you might say, 
everyone has this idea, but you overlay something onto a cutting board and then it tells you where and how to, how to cut things. Um, but I think even walking back a step further from that, and even uh, like you could do something on our, our current daydream platform where uh, we really hope and are looking to see learning as a major category of um, applications and experiences you have in virtual reality. Cause yeah. I think when you have this completely virtual and exper- uh, um, fully immersive environment, there's a lot of things you can teach someone and learn that's a lot harder to explain without diagrams or really complex text. And some of these devices also the the from the Bosch they have this thing called Mikey. It's like basically a, a social <laughs> robot uh, that they demoed at at CES, and it, it actually projects video uh, onto like a surface. And I love this idea of taking video, putting it on a kitchen surface. Uh, maybe it's for like instructing yourself how to cook. And I always think about this stuff when I think of, when I see it, I think about, I go being a star Wars nerd. I always go back to like the hologram. Like that's the ultimate to me, right? Like getting to that hologram phase, that type of projection of video, and maybe even get into, into 3d video projected into like a space without any sort of goggles on, would you call that virtual reality? Um, well, I think specifically projecting video would, would count more as augmented reality. Yep. Um, it's, yeah, it's projected AR as like the trendy way to call it would be. But, um, I, yeah, we do think about that a little bit. I, I, I think there's a whole world of ways you could implement um, Tango-like tracking into a wide variety of objects. Um, but I, it, it still feels like, to me, like it's a little bit further off. I, I think part of it is, um, uh, you know, I, my dream kitchen isn't necessarily windowless yeah. Yeah. Uh, and has a lot of natural light and nice surfaces. And I, that's sometimes seems to be at odds with projection screens. Is a lot of your job just like like dorks like me saying, hey, this is what I want. I want Star Wars. I want to live it. And like you just have to kind of dial us all back a little bit. Uh, no, no. I mean, sometimes <laughs> I, I, I like to be that with – I like to join along for the ride. Um, it, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I think one of the best parts about the job is talking to a bunch of people really excited about some really cool ideas. So it, it's not uh, – it's not just me saying no all the time. <laughs> hey, well, Bashir, thank you for saying yes to this podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, and I look forward to talking to you soon again. Awesome. Thank you. Well, if you've ever wondered how the smart home and virtual reality will interact and interface with one another, I hope you have your answer today. I thought that was pretty interesting. I want to thank Bashir for coming on the podcast. As always, thank you for listening to this. I appreciate everyone who listens to the Smart Home Show If you want to tweet out to me and talk to me on on Twitter, suggest guests, or just give me feedback, just follow me at Michael Wolf on Twitter. I'd appreciate it. All right, folks, until next week, we'll talk to you soon.